Mr. Gamper, thank you for coming to the podcast today. I'm excited to talk to you about your uh, your trip to Kilimanjaro and some other some other topics today. But I was hoping that we could start with that journey to Tanzania that you have mm-hmm. gone on in the, in the past uh, month or so. And I'd love to hear about first your inspiration for doing something like that, and and <laughs> then we can get into the details of the trip. Yeah. Well, the inspiration started. Four years ago, when the um, a couple of us who had went to Tanzania were in uh, Wyoming, and we climbed Grand Teton, and so after coming down from Grand Teton, we sat and looked at each other and said, "Okay, what's next?" Um, and uh, my brother, my older brother, um, uh, Dick, said, "Well, let's go climb Kilimanjaro," and everybody sort of laughed and. But over time, we started to make inquiries, and we talked to a number of people who had done it, and uh, uh, we started to make plans in 2019, uh, and then we uh, ultimately booked the trip for 2020, and COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And so for two years, it sort of got put on hold, and uh, we went this year. So um, for for the Tetons, what, like, I've never climbed Teton. How high is that mountain? It feels like Kilimanjaro is the fourth highest peak in in the world. Like, what is the jump there from climbing a mountain in Wyoming to, to Kilimanjaro? Uh, well, Grand Teton's not even 14,000 feet. You know, it's not one of the higher peaks in the Rockies, but it was a peak that required some technical climbing and some, some ropes, and uh, we had never done that, so... It was a chance for a new opportunity, and uh, we went out a few days early, and there was they put us through a, a climbing school, and then uh, then we went up onto the mountain. Hmm. So have you always been into climbing and hiking and that sort of thing? Or hiking, yes. Climbing, no. And um, uh, Kilimanjaro is not a climb. There is no ropes, no technical component to it anywhere, at least through, I'd say, 75 or 80 percent of the different routes you can go up Um, and so that was a climb but it was more of a hike grand teton was a hike and then a climb i mean then then we roped up at at the top so So did it take some convincing from your brothers to i mean it seems like your older brother really wanted to do this but if someone told me that they wanted to climb kilimanjaro i i you know it might take a little bit of convincing for me um no um i through my upbringing, I was at, at camps, summer camps, and we did a lot of hiking. I was a count, counselor for many years and was a trip counselor and did a lot of hiking. Um, one summer, 1982, I took the summer off from, from education and from counsel, being a counselor and uh, walked the Appalachian Trail from New York to Maine. So that was mm-hmm. 855 miles of the over 2,000 miles of the trail. So. Okay, so you've had a pretty long history of this sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In New Hampshire, I've climbed 44 of the 48 peaks over 4,000. In the Adirondacks, I've climbed 42 of the 46 peaks over 4,000. And that's mainly where I've done most of my climbing. So Okay. Uh, was this your first trip to Africa? Before? It was my first trip to Africa, uh, yeah. And... Uh, it was an eye-opening trip in lots of different ways. What so. was it like, I guess, just flying in and getting off the plane in Africa for the first time? Well, the we flew from Amsterdam down to Arusha, 
And so we flew over the Sahara during the day, and it was a clear day. So the first thing that, that sort of struck me was the immenseness of the Sahara Desert. It just, it for hours, we seemed to be over top of the desert. Hmm. Um, and then when we finally landed, it was uh, in, it was dark in Arusha, so we got off. And their international airport is um, not what most people would expect an international airport to be. It was a runway and a building. But the plane, you know, sat on the tarmac, and they brought the the the, the uh, stairs over, and the plane exited, and then you had to go through um, uh, the immigration and, and customs and stuff. So it was uh, you didn't see much at night, but the next day things sort of started to be noticeable, I guess. So in total, travel was how many hours? Travel over was about thirty-eight. Travel back was forty-four. Jeez, that's exhausting. It was. Exhausting. So you're probably exhausting once, once you're exhausted once you get in. And then what what was the process like? Did you take a couple of days to recover from your travel before you started or, or how did it develop? The, yeah, the, uh, the that night we went to bed. The next day was sort of just chill. You know, mm-hmm. we just stayed at, at the uh, hotel where we were. Um, and then the following day, we went on a mini safari, a day-long safari in Arusha National Park. And then the day after that, we began the trek. We drove to a, uh, a reserve where we stayed in a camp and got our final briefing. And then the day after that, we, we started our ascent. It was a nine-day trip, but then on day seven, we, we, we summited it. Hmm. Yeah, I was shocked. I, I mean, honestly, I thought something, because I didn't really know the details of what it takes to climb a mountain like that, but you were back in seemingly no time, and I was like... Well, it was, we were going, we were in Tanzania for 17 nights. Um, uh, we were gone almost three weeks because of the travel time in, in there, so, yeah. Okay, so what was the, um, what was the safari like, first off? Well, the day-long safari was actually kind of interesting because... We were able to get out of, in, in many of the safaris, you can't get out of your vehicles. You know, you're, you're in the Land Rovers, and they pop the tops, and you drive around. Um, in Arusha, we were able to get out, but we, had to, we were accompanied by an armed uh, ranger who had a gun um, because of the, you know, there, there are wild animals there. And, uh, but we walked among the, the giraffes in particular, which was just a lot of fun. And uh, uh, it was a, it, it, it was a, it wasn't expansive in terms of the amount of wildlife we saw, but it was sort of enjoyable because we were right there among the animals. Um, uh, the water buffalo, they wouldn't let you get too close. Those are actually the most dangerous animals in Africa and cause the most human deaths in Africa. They'll attack you, right? They, yeah, they will. Um, and so uh, uh, that was fun. Uh, the we did a safari after the climb. Um, and we went up uh, uh, into the Serengeti for that, and that we stayed actually right on the Serengeti, you know, in tents, in what is called a camp. But it's it the tents are nice, the camps are nice, the accommodations are, are, are first class. So hmm. yeah. Hmm. Um, so this is all taking place in Tanzania, correct? All in Tanzania. Everything we did was in Tanzania. We never crossed the borders. Now hmm. you're reminding me a lot of uh, some some Hemingway stories. Yeah. I'm sure you've gotten that a yeah, lot. I've heard, I've heard that. Um, 
but the um, the, the, the when they talk about the snows of Kilimanjaro, the, there are still glaciers on the mountain, and um, they're still substantial, but substantially less than they would have been ten years ago. And and our guide said they're guessing within the next ten to fifteen years, the glaciers may not be there. Wow, and right now they're they're fifty feet tall in some places. So wow. So they're rapidly melting, both because the volcano the Kilimanjaro is is still warm. So they're melting from the bottom, and now they're melting from the top because the temperature changes. Oh my gosh! Um, so what was it like seeing this this volcano for the first time? Well, it's interesting. We didn't see it until actually the day before we started to climb because it was in the clouds and and. Um, uh, the the evening before we climbed in the morning that we actually started to climb in this reserve where we were staying, you could look up and see the mountain and uh, it looked a long way away and uh, and even when we started our trip and we got up onto the 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 heath area of the mountain, you go through seven um, climate zones as you climb um, and you see the mountain. It looks a long way. I mean we. We did a total of uh, 45 miles, you know, over the, the nine days that we, we climb. Hmm. So it's, you do start, uh, the route that we took starts a pretty long distance from the summit. What is a typical day? Like, do you wake up at 6 a.m. and start your, your, your climb, or what does yeah. it look like? Well, I, I got to first preface all of that with, okay. there was, a, our group was seven people, six of us, were together and then one person was added into our group but in order for the six of us to trek to the summit there was a support staff that included 38 porters um, three guides um, four personal porters and then uh, a medical an EMT guy and then a cook and a, and a, and a waiter Oh wow! So you so had... that, it, it was a cast of thousand. I mean, it wasn't like you were alone in the woods somewhere. You, right. There was this was a, an expedition, so to speak, and uh, it was um, it was an amazing thing to watch. So in the morning, uh, wake up would usually be about six o'clock. There'd be a warm basin of water put outside your tent, so that you could wash your hands and face. Um, you'd get dressed. You'd go. There's a mess tent with a table and chairs that they're carrying up the mountain. We sat and had breakfast. While we were eating breakfast, the porters were, you know, um, taking our tent down, packing it up, taking their sleeping bag, packing it up, and they're putting it into bundles that they put on their heads or their backs or however they choose to carry it. And it were all different methods. And they take off. They're gone. You know, They walk time, ahead of you. They walk ahead so that... Um, uh, and then when the when we finish our meal, the porters who were carrying the, the the cook tent and the mess tent and the tables and chairs they pack all that up, and then they go running past us as we're as we're moving along the trail. It's uh, uh, I, I was a little bit unnerved with that, um, and then in talking with them, it's actually by government. Um, I want to say edict, but government law, that that you have to have a certain ratio of porters and guides to every climber. Uh, and they do that because it's employment. 
you know, it, it's it's a huge, you know, the, the tourism, both at Kilimanjaro and in the Serengeti, is just huge business and huge money and influx of foreign capital for them, and so uh, they mandate if I were to climb it alone, I'd need one guide, four and at least four porters. So it would be five of us. Uh, excuse me, six of us going up. So. Hmm. Okay. So you've had a, you have a lot of assistance on this. Yeah, on this you, journey. You, yeah. You're you're not you're not putting a backpack of forty or fifty pounds with a tent and a sleeping bag on your back and going. Your 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 job is to is to get to the top, and their job is to get you there. And that's that's a sole purpose. And and they they do everything they can to make sure you're going to get to the summit. So they take really good care of you. Was was the journey up the mountain still pretty strenuous for you? There were times, yes. And, and as you got higher and higher, the oxygen, the, 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 the lower levels of oxygen were noticeable. Um, none of us got altitude sickness. You know, we were all taking uh, Diamox, which is, uh, you know, something that helps with, with absorption of, of the oxygen. So that was, um, uh, that was helpful. Um, no one got sick. No one got sick. Uh, I had a, on the summit day, on my way down, as we started coming down, they started taking, they they monitor our oxygen the whole way. I was in the high 70s, which is not a good thing. So um, um, they wanted in the high 80s and certainly into the 90s when possible. But by the time I got back down to the camp, which we summited from, which was at 15,000 feet, my oxygen level got back into the 80s, and by later that night, I was back into the 90s. But it was, uh, but I, I didn't feel any effects of it. So, yeah. now when you say that there are seven uh, different like temperature changes, like how do you prepare for that? What do you pack, and what were the like most noticeable temperature discrepancies on the trip? Yeah, <laughs> I was a, where we were in in Tanzania is only. 150 miles, 200 miles south of the equator. We were actually in the southern hemisphere. And the temperature, even at, 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 in Arusha, but Arusha, remember, is about 3,000 to 4,000 feet high. The temperature not, never got above 85. So the temperatures were, not, were never hot. So the, and in the rainforests, the temperatures were actually a little cooler than that. Um, so uh, I, because of the sun, I wore long pants and long shirts the whole time, the whole the whole trip up, and then put on layers as it got colder and colder. Um, but it, it it was it it was very easy. I mean, the 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 main adjustments you make is to the cold as you go up, and and you go from a rainforest to what's called a high heath area where the vegetation um, changes. I guess is the best way to say it, and then you go into the the low heath area where the vegetation is starting to diminish. Um, then you get up into the Arctic desert, and then you just get up into the, the, the Arctic zone of the near the summit. And then as you come down, you do the same thing, but it through a different rainforest and through a different set of trails. How cold was it up at the top? Well, it wasn't the top that was cold, because we had a sunny day when we summited. Um, so actually at the top, it, it was probably about 30 degrees, maybe a little lower, a little below freezing. Um, the night before and then the night after, the temperature dropped down to 10 degrees Fahrenheit or so. I mean, it was cold. Hmm. It was cold. What, was the, uh, what was the most difficult 
part of this experience for you? Gosh, I think it 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 would be the this this the steady grind of it. I guess would be the best way to say it. Um, and one of the things is, you know, those who people who camp and hike in the United States, you're used to sort of having a a certain pace. The guides set the pace, and the guides move really slowly because they want you to go slowly because they want you to adjust as you take each step. Um, and you would often hear the guides and the porters turn to you and say, "Poly, poly," it means slowly, slowly. You know, don't you know? You're, this isn't a race. We'll get you to the top, but mm-hmm. you're going to do it our way. And um, so, in what language do they speak? Swahili. And do they speak any English? Uh, many of them did, some better than others, and then some of them did not. Do you speak any Swahili? I do not. I learned. You learned poly poly. I learned poly poly. You learned that very quickly, actually. Um, but the, uh, um, uh, the the language barrier was not much of a barrier. You know, they, it used to be a British colony. You know, it started out as a German colony, and then after World War One, the Brits took it over. So, um, and that was another eye opener. Is just sort of the cultural things that go on there and. And right now, the Chinese are trying to make a major, um, establish a major presence in there economically and 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 socially and in other ways. So uh, that's being greeted. You know, with the with the, the individuals we were with, they weren't totally wild about that. You know, that investment that's being made by the Chinese. So. What is Tanzania's main source of income? Is it tourism? tourism. Yeah, tourism. Yeah. Uh, you know, they have the, the Serengeti, Kilimanjaro, and then they have the island of Zanzibar, which is a big popular resort area, too. So those are the primary sources of income. And, and most people, the, the annual income in U.S. dollars would be about, average av- annual income would be about $500. Hmm. And we we never converted currencies. We The, the American dollar is very welcome there. Right, and most things are are pegged in the American dollar, uh, and then sometimes if it's a local store, it would be in the uh, Tanzanian shillings. So, how was the food? Food was great. Really, food was good. Even on the way up, uh, you know, my birthday was the day before we started. So the first night we, you know, we got to the our first camp, and the cook, and all he's cooking on is a. Um, propane run burner he baked me a cake and we had a birthday party it, oh, you know, it was it was absolutely uh, an amazing you know and, and uh, you know it was a good feeling and and you know the, the and we felt welcome really wherever we went the food um, along the trail was great uh, we always would start dinner with a soup and then there'd be usually some type of carbohydrate included in the main course and it might be spaghetti and 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 meat you know they there was fresh meat and they kept they had you know uh, freezer type uh coolers that they kept things in and uh after five days there was a resupply and when they resupplied they sent their trash out and the and the new food came in. So hmm. now, did you wake up? So remind me how many days this took in total. It took nine days total. Nine days total. So eight did, nights. So when did you start to wake up in the morning and be like, "Oh man, like I, I 
This is wearing on me. I would say the fifth or sixth day it starts to get to you, and by the fifth or sixth day, the temperatures at night are well, you know, below freezing. You know, you're you're pretty much by the fifth fifth day, um, fourth night, fifth day. You're 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 in frigid temperatures at night. We had frost. Never had any snow, but we had heavy frosts, and uh, and it. it it's sometimes hard to sleep when it's, when it's that cold. Yeah. Um, and they would take uh, some of our water bottles and put hot water in it. So that we put those into our sleeping bags, and that would be our drinking water the next day. Hmm. And that brings up another lesson I think I learned is the value of water. Um, some of the camps were two miles from the water source. And so they had to send the porters to the source of water with five-gallon um, uh, buckets to get water to cook with. Water for us, you know, I almost felt guilty washing in the morning because I knew somebody had to go and and get the, you know, go two miles down and then two miles back up, you know, to get this water for us. Um, and if the glaciers disappear, that source of water is likely to disappear, which would make climbing the mountain I would say almost impossible um, but uh, and and then you looked when we drove the streets and drove into some of the villages there's no running water no, no, very few houses have running water and so the the households go to the water source and they load it into a wheelbarrow or whatever they have and then they take it home um, very few houses have have electricity, you know, and uh, it made me appreciate f far more what we have here, and um, uh, and uh, I think it made me more aware of of what it's really like in some of these third world countries that that I haven't traveled extensively. In, so, now where is Kilimanjaro situated geographically? Where in the where it's, in the country? It, it's um, on the north, almost north central border. Not far from the border with with, with uh, Kenya. Okay. It's I mean it's literally a couple hundred miles south of the equator. And the capital? The capital is Dar al Salaam. So you didn't fly in there. Actually, we did. Oh, you did. We we, were, we flew out of there. So the plane that comes into Arusha stops there, where most of the people get off. But then it continues for about an hour long flight to the coast which is where Dar al Salaam, the capital is. And that's right across the, the island of Tan uh, Zanzibar, right off of the, the coast there, so. Now, what is the Serengeti, what is that? Serengeti is just a wide open plain, you know, and it is, um, it, 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 it changes due to wet and dry seasons. And so there, the, there are animals that migrate on a regular basis in a sort of in a circular motion as, as the weather changes and as the grasslands in some area become dry and then in other areas become wet. And so the, there is a, a, an annual migration that people go to watch. Um, we, we saw it, but we weren't in, at the, the best vistas are where it crosses rivers where, you know, the, the wildebeests and the, and, the, and the antelopes and the, um, the gazelles, as they cross, they have to get through uh, crocodile-infested waters and, and other things. And so um, uh, we, we saw the, the, the animals moving, but never across, we never saw them cross any of the rivers where we were.
Man, the seasonal patterns of animals is so fascinating. Is. I know that that's something that's interesting to you, yeah, too, is. with the bees and... It's, uh, it, it, it's it, again, tourism, I'm going to say tourism, Marines. And so in the Serengeti, you know, it's not like we're driving the only uh, Land Rover with the pop top through the Serengeti. I mean, off in the distance and now sometimes... If there's a, we, we came across a, an elephant that had died of natural causes. And there were just, there were 10 or 12 lions, you know, feasting on this elephant. And once the word got out, all of the Land Rovers came and, you know, so there was like a, a, a coliseum of, of Land Rovers around the, this, just watching the, the, the lions and their cubs, you know, chowing down on this this dead elephant Man. and they, and we asked so what happens because the elephant had tusks and the ivory that's there um, and they say what they'll do is they'll let the the animals strip the carcass then the rangers go in and they take the ivory out and they take the ivory to a warehouse and then um, every year they have a legal sale of the of the ivory that's been taken that way so it's it's almost an entire assembly line on the on the plains. Yeah, yeah, it is. and and you know it's it. You're not again. You're not alone on the on the plains. Um, you're you're there with with a with a relatively large group of other vehicles. Sometimes you see them. Sometimes you don't because the Serengeti is huge. Um, it was set aside here again where the British income uh, and Queen Elizabeth. Uh, she when she was first. Um, uh, coronated, she went down to Africa and, and to Tanzania, and she fell in love with it. They, they actually built the Windsors built a house down there. There's a Windsor estate or something down there. We didn't see it, but um, they um, uh, she set aside that land initially as a national preserve, and then the government of Tanzania, when they left the Commonwealth, maintained it and have taken good advantage of it in terms of you know their economy and 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 they're good stewards there's not much poaching in in tanzania they they keep a good close watch on their on their wildlife to make sure that the rhinos and the elephants in particular are, are protected so hmm. now is this this a one-time thing you think for you is this like a one-off on the bucket list or is this something you would do again would I do it again? Would you I go don't, to I'd, Africa or oh, Tanzania? Oh, I'd go to Africa. I'd go to Africa in, in a New York second, but not necessarily to Tanzania. I'd like to see some other parts of it. I'd like to see South Africa. You know, I'd like to see Victoria Falls. I'd like to see a lot of things there. I'd also like to go to New Zealand. I'd like to go to Patagonia. You know, there are other places I, I would like to go. So I don't think I have to go to 19,000 feet again. You know, I don't think I, I have a desire to do that because there are not many peaks you can do it that don't involve, you know, technical climbing. And that I know I don't want to do again. I, I, I did that once, and I'm, I'm very happy with that. Uh, Is it something that, so, for instance, I was fortunate enough to be a chaperone on a trip to Peru a couple of years ago mm-hmm. with Gilman, and I, uh, if anyone is going to Machu Picchu, I would say, like, that's something that you should definitely do in your life because it was no picture does it justice. It was the yeah. most magnificent, like, natural uh view i've ever seen in my life just so vast and amazing do you feel that way about kilimanjaro as well well 
it's interesting. From the summit of Kilimanjaro, you don't get much of a view because it often is above the clouds. You know, so from down below, you don't see the top because the clouds hover probably at around twelve or thirteen thousand feet, and and so from below you don't see the top, and from the top you don't look out over the vastness of Africa, except on special days, and we we certainly didn't have one of those. Um, but you know, you, it is interesting to be above the clouds and to look just and an endless sea of clouds. Um, uh, but the vistas that we had of Kilimanjaro from like the Arctic plains that we walked, that was really cool. That was, that was, and, and then being on top and seeing the glaciers up close and seeing um, the crater, uh, that was really cool. Um, uh, the Serengeti is just this wide, you know, it's, I guess it's a lot like driving through Kansas except there are lions and, you know, and other forms of wildlife there. It's very flat and very open, a um, few hills along the way. But it, it was beautiful countryside. Um, uh, so uh, I'd love to do Machu, Machu Picchu. I have not done. I'd, cool. I'd like to do that. Did you walk up? or? No, we did not. And that would be pretty cool to do. We just drove a bus because we had like 17 or 18 kids, right. and we only had right. a couple days in that town. So. Right. Um, we drove up, but still, like you could, once you get up there, you can walk around and you can go to the higher parts and you can hike all around that area. Yeah. But just the view was incredible there. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of wildlife, was the feasting of the elephant was, and where you're kind of right up close, was that the most like memorable or striking image that you saw? Um, it, it was. It would rank amongst the top couple, yes. The what where, where we stayed, we're actually out on the plane. So at night, there was actually a herd of zebra who walked right through our camp, and not far behind them, you know, there were lions and hyenas that were waiting to ambush them. The camp had armed guards. I mean, the, there were people with high-powered rifles who walked the camp at night to be sure that it was safe. Um, and, and so one morning when we woke up, no more than 50 yards, and I don't think it was 50 yards from our tent, there were 20 elephants and five or six giraffes, you know, eating out of the trees and everything. And, and I mean, literally, we could sit on the porch of the tent and just watch, you know, and that was, that was, that was really memorable, you know, being, again, that close and, uh, to the animals that you see in the zoo, you know, and that it's, it's much neater to see them in their, in their own habitat. Yeah, I'm sure there's nothing like. I mean, you could watch all the planet Earth that you yeah. want, and you can go to the it zoo, is. but it's just not. No, it's it. You know, being there right uh, up close was was really cool, and and because we were in our camp, and because there was an armed guard, we you know they didn't chase them away, and we were able to walk within reason a little closer to them, but they didn't let us go amongst them, so to speak. So, is there any? Are there any like super interesting facts that you? learned I guess from observing these animals up close um, that you can recall uh, learning about the animals no uh, you know I, I think you know I, I learned uh, I learned a lot about the people of Tanzania I learned more about the people than I did necessarily about the the animals um, and uh, I learned a little bit about myself. And one of the great, we, we had a really good guide. Our guide, 
you know, who took us up the mountain was absolutely, and the guides who took us on the safaris were good too, but the guy on the mountain was really good. And at one point he turned to us, and I'm sure he's heard it from someone else, and I had never heard it said, but so he said, if it doesn't challenge you, it's not going to change you. And, uh, you know, the, the hike up, the, the expedition up, you know, it was challenging. And, and when we all got there, um, we all broke out in tears. Really? Now, for different reasons. I mean, one, I think the fact that, you know, we had planned this, but we'd actually done it now. And everybody in our group was over 65. Uh, my brother was 71, I'm 69, and the other guy was 69, and then all the gals with us were, were 65. I'm sorry to give out their age, but you know that, and 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 that I think impressed some of the people who who took us up. That you know this group of uh, uh, oldies were 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 hell bent on making sure that we made it. And, and I think that's the other thing I think I learned about the dynamic of a group. I think had any of us had gone alone at different times, it would have been easy to say, yeah, you know, I'm not going. Mm-hmm. You know, but I think none of us wanted to be the first to uh, first to crack, so to speak. And so right. we, we 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 pushed each other in 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 a silent but steady way, and supported each other in a silent but steady way. So yeah, it's like being really on a cool. team. It's like being on a team. It is. It is. And the, and that team included you know forty eight or forty nine porters and guides and everything else. And and uh, you know they. Their goal was to get us there too, and they were going to do everything they could do to make sure that happened. But to do it safely, I mean, they they made sure they had all sorts of medical. They had oxygen tanks if if you know altitude sickness became acute. They had uh, all sorts of other equipment. So um, I felt safe. And a footnote on that: the seventh person who was added to our group who was not part of the, our, our our group was a cardiologist from New York City. And oh, there you yeah, go. Yeah, that was, that, was a big, that was a big relief that, uh, that all of us being over 65 saying, oh, yeah, that's, you're welcome here. That's a nice bonus. Yeah, it was. So uh, these were, apart from you and your brother, these are just people that you well, met. My, the, the, the two other, my wife and then the two other women were classmates of hers at Sweetbriar. Oh, and, I didn't know your and, wife went with you. Yeah, too. my wife went with me too, yeah. And we, we talked long and hard about that, and we, we agreed that if any one of us had a problem that we couldn't go up, that we were medically told not to go up or something like that, that the other one would go, you know, and continue. But fortunately, again, I think, you know, that's where I think being a part of a group makes it a little easier to, to not easier, but it's incentive to, to get to the top. So, so would, you say, um, would you say half the battle is pretty much planning the trip and getting there and once you're there i mean it was you know you're not you're not gonna like turn back down the mountain on day five like once you get to the place you're you're gonna make it to the top well i would tell you no because we saw people going down and we ran across people who after two or three days said i can't deal with this anymore um the route that we went up was one of the longer routes but it's it also has like a 90 percent success rate most gradual. Yeah, it's the most gra- It's the second most gradual. Um, Kevin Hudson, actually, who did it for his honeymoon, uh, did the backside, which is a 12-day trip, which is a little bit more gradual. Um, uh, but um, the uh, uh, a lot of people for different for different reasons 
you know, just say, I've had enough. I mean, I think when it gets cold, some people say, I'm not staying out here anymore. And, you know, they get taken down. And then there are people who medically have issues. Um, they have, at different points on the mountain, they have helicopter pads that the, 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 the government has built to, to get people out if they need to be gotten out. So, you know, was it is the people who don't make it are the people who try to get up and down in like four or five days. Yeah. Unless they're used to high altitudes. You know, if they've done a lot of climbing at high altitudes, then they could probably do that. But, you know, the people like us who said, well, we only have four days, so we're going to go climb Kilimanjaro. You know, the, on some of those routes that you could take, the success ratio is like maybe above 50%. Because hmm. it's just too fast. Yeah, it's too fast to do it. it, it yeah. It's just way too fast to do it. Hmm. Well, um, so you get to the top, and I mean, was the was the was the summit of the mountain like the best part of the trip, or the most memorable trip, or was it just the process? As a lot of people say, like the the actual gradual climbing the mountain. Like, what's most memorable to you? Getting to the top was the culmin. I mean, that was that that will always be memorable. Um, the you know, and and looking around, we were fortunate. Um, uh, our, again, our guide is a savvy guy. This was, he said, like the 250th time he's been to the top. But he, uh, the, the, usually from the camp where we went up, which is u- usually the last camp that most, there's one other route that goes up a different, you know, way, but uh, most people go stay in that camp, so it's crowded. I mean, you know, you've got all of our tents and then all these other tents. But most people get up at midnight and start their summit climb at you know one or two, and they get to the summit at six or seven after the sun's just come up. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, so the that the morning that we summited, we got up at like four and started at five. Uh, it was still dark, so we had our headlamps and we were going, but not dark for too long. Uh, so. When we were going up, there was weren't any other groups with us. So when we got to the summit, we were there alone, which that made it even more special because evidently earlier in the morning, the groups that went up, there were like 10 groups up there all at the same time, and they were all vying to have their pictures taken in front of the sign that says Peak of Kilimanjaro and all. And and it evidently wasn't too friendly. Um, so when we got up there, we had, we had probably half hour, 40 minutes on the summit, no one else in sight. You know where we could simply, I think, take in the moment. You know, and that that was that was really special. You timed it well. well I did. You, you your know, guide, the, the your guy, savvy guy, our savvy guy, timed it. As you're ascending the mountain, are you? Do you see people pretty often? Like, did you come in contact with other people as you were as you were going up? Um, along the trail, it was like Grand Central Station because really? as, as, as we're going along, remember the, the porters of our group as well as other groups are passing us. So actually the summit day is when you see the least people because the porters don't go up. They stay in the camp. And so um, uh, that, that's the least number. That's the day you see the least number of people. Um, hmm. But uh, you know, during and, and I, you know, I, I hope to show the kids some slides during the day. You'll come into contact with a thousand people. I'm willing to bet, you know, be, be amongst the porters and the other climbers and and everybody else who's on the mountain. 
So it, it's not it's not like you're 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 immersed in nature. You know, you're immersed in a in a in a in a goal of trying to get to the top of Kilimanjaro. And 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 there are some beautiful things. I got some great slides of some really pretty, I think, vistas and things. But um, you know, that's it's not like you know Machu Picchu where you just look out. You know, but I imagine Machu Picchu. Machu Picchu. Yeah, it's surprising because I think when you uh, when you look at images of some of these destinations on the internet or whatnot, there's no one in the picture. Right. So you're like, oh, that's what it's going to appear when I get up there, and yeah. you don't realize that it's the you know, it's yeah. the wonder of the, is it is it a wonder of the world? Yeah, it is, it, it is. It is. Yeah, and it's a national or a uh, United Nations heritage site too, as well. Yeah. So it's yeah. So it's packed. Um, I think it's interesting that you said, you know, you learned a lot about the people of Tanzania. You learned about group dynamics, but you also learned about yourself on this journey. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? What do you mean you learned about yourself? Well. I learned I can still do something like this at my age, which is always comforting to know. Um, so there will be, we'll do something else. I don't know what it's going to be yet. You know, we all agreed, so let's not have a, uh, let's not sit down and, and figure out what the next one is for at least a couple of months. So we're, we'll we'll meet at some point and figure out what we'll, we will do. Um, but... Uh, I, I think that's one part of it that I, you know, I could still do it, and, and uh, I, I learned it was fun to share this this with my wife. You know, quite frankly, you know, we've been doing a lot of hiking together, but never anything like this. She's never been one to want to sleep on the ground, and and I don't think she wants to do that again. I don't think that that's it. But it, I think she would love to do some more climbing and some more things of that nature. Um, so the huts of the White Mountains will be probably calling us in, in that regard. Um, and we've already done a few of those. Um, but I, I, I think, uh, I think it, it, it changed me in the sense that the way I look at the world and the way I look at things that, that, uh, that I've taken for granted, you know, that I can walk into a room and turn on the light switch and lights are going to go on, there's going to be electricity. and Gosh, if we lose electricity for an hour because of a storm, you know, everybody gets upset. The fact that I can turn on a spigot and there's water to drink, much less to bathe in, you know, so it's, uh, um, you know, I think the the developed world has got to figure some things out, you know, along the way here. And, um, you know, I'd I'd like to think I could play a role in that. I haven't figured that piece out yet, though. (laughs) So... Well, at least telling your perspective and your, I guess, shift in perspective is one way. But I think, uh, you know, through listening to you talk about this experience, it does remind me of a lot of stories that I've read. And, you know, maybe I haven't had an experience like climbing a mountain like this yet. Hopefully I will. But it reminds me a lot of these stories like Jack London and (laughs) Ernest Hemingway and when man confronts nature. And I think just reading those stories and putting yourselves in a situation like, uh, you know, a Jack London story is, it, it makes you think about the things that you have and your that are so easy. You know, you get in your car, you turn on the lights switch or yeah. you flush the toilet. And that's just not the way that most of the world operates. No, it didn't. And, and, you know, that the, the final night of the climb, um, we stayed at a camp, 
you know, in the, the top of the rainforest that you go out. And it's traditionally, amongst all of the expedition groups that, that book these trips, it's what's called tipping night. And what it is is the, the, the clients, that's us, um, uh, I don't want to say are expected, but they're expected to tip the, those people who helped us get up. And so the, the agency that we use you know, said this is sort of normal tipping. And, of course, when it, it becomes personal when, you, when you've lived it and the, you know what each of those individuals has done and that collective group has done to help you get to the top of Kilimanjaro. And so, you know, we were, we were significantly more generous than, than what was recommended. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, none of us felt that we were tipping enough, you know. And uh, the other part of that is you had to carry all your money with you the whole time. They said never leave your money or your passport anywhere. Because it's it's likely to disappear. So literally, we slept with our money, we climbed with our money, we hiked with our money, and and uh, with cash, cash, you know, everything in cash. They if if you use a credit card there, you're going to get hit with minimally a ten percent hmm. uh, 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 fee that, that is affiliated with the purchases. So we carried a lot of cash, and it was all in small bills. And they tell you bring new bills if you can, because the American dollar is a legitimate means of uh, medium of exchange in, in, in Tanzania. And so, you know, we, you know, they have this ceremony and the, and the guides and the porters sing. And, and you know, it's, 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 it's a festive moment, especially if everybody summited, you know, because it, it's a celebration. Um, and so then you give <clears throat> each, we gave the 38 porters a, a great big envelope, you know, that they were to divide and then we gave a tip to each of the guides and to the cooks and to, you know and, and 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 then they ask if there's any clothing you want to leave behind mm -hmm. or any climbing gear or anything like that so you know we took what we weren't felt we weren't going to use again and we you know, we left that and then that gets the the head guide then um raffles that off each you know he he calls each of the porters up and each of the members of the group and they get to choose what you know something that's out in this pile of stuff. Hmm. So and and they are you know it, it, again it, it it's something that for us is it was nice to have, but for them it's something that that you know they need. Um, um, and, and when we were at the top of Kilimanjaro, uh, one of the porters who did go up with us, you know, he didn't have any gloves, didn't have a you know warm hat. He had a hood, but no warm. You know, and, and it, it was. Yeah, it, it it can't help but affect the way you sort of look at things. Right. Well, now, was there anything that you forgot to, to pack on your, your trip? Um, my situation was kind of precarious, actually. When my bag that had all of my expedition stuff in it for Kilimanjaro got lost Jeez. in transit. And so of course. <clears throat> we were talking with KLM. We were talking with our with the, the agency that we booked through. We were talking with the hotel where we were staying. We were talking with the, you know, we were talking with everybody. And then at 11 o'clock the night before we were leaving to go to the camp to start the, the trek, um, the, one of the workers um, 
at the hotel had been called, and he went over and picked up this bag, and it was mine. And so I had to go, you know, rooting through that and pull the things that I needed. Um, so they give you a checklist. Um, I would say 80% of that checklist you need. But there were 20% of the things on that checklist that we, we didn't need, and some of which we knew we weren't going to need, so we didn't take. Um, but then there were some things that we took that, you know, we left there. You know, it was, you know, someone else can enjoy it. It just wasn't something that we needed to go up. You know, they were, they were, they wanted us to take um, micro spikes, you know, for walking on, mm-hmm. on, on snow and ice. Well, the glaciers aren't there anymore, you know, aren't on the trail anymore. I mean, they're, they're melted way away and you have to, you have to hike over to get to them. So um, those were totally unnecessary. Now, they may have been necessary 10 years ago, but, you know, but there are things like that that you just didn't need. Hmm. Um, so I want to ask you a little bit about maybe where, I guess, the origin of your love or passion for natural wildlife comes from, because one of the things I want to talk to you about is the beekeeping club and your interest in beekeeping. Um, you know, I think one of my first encounters were, with you was, I was giving a lacrosse lesson, uh, you know, a couple years ago, kind of when I first started here at Gilman, back behind the, on the wall, and all of a sudden I got stung by like four or five bees. Well, they might not have been ours. And I'm like, where's that coming from? And it's Mr. Gamper and his beekeeping club. And um, I'd love to just know, I guess, the origin story for wildlife interest in beekeeping. Well, the wildlife or <clears throat> I'd, I'd go a little broader, say the, the outdoors started when I was young. You know, my mom and dad, we've always spent summers in New Hampshire, and, you know, I think that's where that all started. Um, the beekeeping came, that, that's a funny story. Um, my youngest daughter, when she was five years old, wanted an apple tree. So we, for her birthday, we planted an apple tree, and, you know, a couple years later, no apples, no apples. And so my wife looked at me and said, we need bees to pollinate the, the apples. And so at that point, Steve McDaniels, uh, you know, Steve, yeah, Steve um, kept, kept bees and we knew that. So we went out and visited his, his apiary and uh, he was pretty confident that we could do it because we weren't nervous around the bees and didn't freak out when we went into the hives. And so we bought two hives from him and uh, that started his own. That was about 15 or 16 years ago. Um, uh, and, uh, so then, um, uh, we still didn't have any, um, apples on the apple tree. And then we came, came to find out you need at least two apple trees so they can cross, so they can cross pollinate. And so, uh, we got another apple tree and then another apple tree. So now we have apples and bees. Mm. Um, but the bees have been, um, uh, it, they've they've been a lesson in and of themselves. I mean, I there I have a love hate relationship with them. I'm the one who cuts the grass, so um, they don't like the lawnmower near their hives. And so uh, the first few times I cut the grass, I got stung a lot. Hmm. And so now when I cut the grass, I put the bee suit on, and and I don't worry about it as much. But uh, um, it, it's something that again Mary and I can do together. It's something that. Uh, you know, we have fun with uh, the annual taking of the honey and extracting the, the frames of honey and then spinning them and bottling things. It's always sort of been a, 
uh, our kids have always invited over their friends. So it, 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 it's a, it's become a, um, a sort of a family affair. Uh, uh, and, and we and neighbors, the neighbors at first were nervous. Oh, we're going to get stung. We're going to get stung. I'm like, you know, it's, you, but really, they haven't bothered the neighbors, and they're very happy to have them now. And they they're coming over and and finding out more about them. And it's been an opportunity to to share our knowledge of the of the bees and and what they and the importance and you know insects in in our view are sort of like the canary in the coal mine that the, the insect population of the world and and bees amongst them um is diminishing and that's not a good thing mm, why not well because they're at the bottom of the food chain for lots of other things you know so that uh and they are also the pollinators of you know a, th- a third of the food we eat is pollinated by by honeybees and other pollinators so you know the fruits and some of the vegetables and and uh, even some of the grains need pollinators in order to to produce the food that we eat. Yeah. Now, what is um, what is your I guess like like do you have do you sell the the honey that you that you get from the bees? We, what is the family business in that? Uh, yeah, sense? we we sell it, but we we don't charge enough. You know, if you go into a a, a retail store. Uh, and you're getting local honey. It's going to be about fifteen dollars a pound. We sell ours for ten. Yeah. You know, we do it to cover costs and to you know maybe make enough that we can improve the equipment that we have. But we're not doing it in a business sense. Now that said, with the kids here at school, I am trying to incorporate a business component into that because I think it's it's another way that they can learn mm-hmm. some things. You know. Uh, the fact that we had to borrow, and I use that word purposefully, that we had to borrow money from the school in order to get the equipment that we needed to get started. The goal is to eventually pay that loan back, as a, you know, in terms of as a business loan, and then we can hopefully operate uh, uh, at a profit. Then we figure out what to do with the the profit. I mean, it, no one's going to pocket the profit. It would be either plowed back into the the bees or donated to, to some charity mm-hmm. so that's the the goal we're we only have two hives so we're not getting we're not producing a lot of honey out of that how many bees typically uh, uh inhabit one hive it varies um this time of year the bee populations are actually diminishing so that there aren't as many bees in the hive during the winter because in the winter they're not getting any food they're relying on the honey and the stored food that they have to get through the winter. So the fewer the bees, the better. But you can't have too few bees because the the temperature around the queen and around the brood eggs that she's laying has to stay at 90 degrees no matter how cold it is outside. And so what they do is they cluster around the queen and the eggs, then they vibrate and they create heat to keep the that part of the hive warm. The worst type of winter for for, for bees is a winter where it gets cold and then gets warm because then they break the cluster and then it gets cold again and then it gets, you know, that type of, of uh, temperature fluctuation will kill lots of hives. They, they just won't make it through the winter. Oh, is that why bees buzz is to, to vibrate to create temperature? Well, in the winter, yes. There, there are lots of reasons why they buzz. In the, in the summer, they... The, temp- the inside of a hive can't get too hot or it'll kill the brood. 
And so then they're actually fanning their wigs to create circulation to keep the, t- the temperature within the hive no higher than 90. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they're air conditioning, quote unquote, in the summer and they're heating in the winter. Um, they also buzz and they dance to communicate with the bees in the hive as to where they've got nectar. They communicate a lot with, with the buzzing that we often observe, mm. but it's more than that for them. That's amazing. Um, what is the difference between the bees that you keep, mostly honeybees, right, yep. and, you know, like a hornet or um, a, a bumblebee, like okay. the different types of bees? Well, this is where you're going to get beyond my my ability as a biologist because I don't have that. But the, the they all might be pollinators, but they're very different. You know, the 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 yellow jackets that are actually a type of wasp. Uh, then you have the hornets. Um, none of those produce honey. First off, um, uh, they the they do live, some of them live in colonies. Yellow jackets usually live in the ground. They're ground nesters. Um, uh, the hornets and wasps often have those paper nests that you see. Yep. Um, the 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 actual differences in terms of them their genetics, I don't know. Uh, just the, the, what they do and what they don't do, you know, is, is revolves around the honey. The honey is the attracting, and, and then the. The honeybees are, are very efficient pollinators, more so than like a, you're talking about a bumblebee. They're, they tend to be solitary bees, and so they don't do a whole lot of, they pollinate, but not to the extent that a huge colony of honeybees could pollinate. Gotcha. Um, do honeybees die when they sting? Yes. They do? Yes, and the only bees that sting in the hive are the worker bees, and they're all females. The drone bees cannot, they don't sting. Uh, they don't work either. The only role of the drone bees is to fertilize the queen. So once they fertilize the queen, they die. Hmm. I wonder why that is. Just their role. That's their role. Their... And, 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 but the, the worker bees feed the drones. The drones are the male bees. Because without the drones, if there, there's a need to replace the queen, there'd be no way to fertilize the queen. So... In a hive, there are not as many drones, obviously, as the worker bees, the female bees. Um, but uh, uh, there has to be some. If they're not, then that hive's likely, you know, not going to make it. Because the queen, a good queen can last about two years. And then she just is exhausted because she lays about a 1,000 eggs a day. Mm. And so... That's uh, incredible. Um, and so that's, you know... A, 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 a healthy hive, coming back to one of your questions, is a healthy hive in the winter would probably be fifteen or 20,000 bees. A healthy hive in the spring and early summer is going to be 60,000 plus. Jeez. So they expand when the nectar's there because that the role then of the colony is to collect as much food as they can for the winter. And so when we take honey, we always leave some. But then this time of year, we're feeding the bees sugar water, you know, a syrupy, you know, heavy, heavily laden sugar water, which they can use then to replace some, some of the honey that we've taken. So you have two beehives at your, <coughs> at your house? Oh, no, we have eight. You have eight now? We wow. have two here at school. Oh, wow. Hmm. We have two here at school. 
Uh, when a bee stings, when a honeybee stings you, what exactly is happening? Well, the stinger, if, if you if you look closely, if you've been it's like stung, a needle. It's like a needle, and it's got a barb on it, so it it's, it can stay in. But what happens is when that when it stings you, and then the bee flies away, that pull, essentially pulls its guts out. The stinger is attached to the innards of a of a of a worker bee of a, of a, a female bee and uh, that pulls all that out and then the bee dies that's why the bee dies and it's amazing that evolutionarily they would have this defense mechanism that kills them. self-destructive yeah yeah they're just hmm. they just fight to the death i guess is what it well, really yeah, means it, yeah i mean it's they 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 when a the life cycle of a worker bee is usually about six weeks, especially in the summer. In the in the winter, their life cycle's longer because they're not working as hard because they're not same. But uh, a, 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 an egg is laid; it becomes larva. The larva becomes a bee. The bee emerges. Uh, its first role in life is to be a nurse bee. So it's there to take care of the the next bees that are coming out as things. So it, it becomes a. a from there, it goes on and becomes a, 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 a guard bee where it guards the inside of the hive and is around the, the entrance and exit. It might also be a, a, a mortician bee because bees die in the hive and they actually take the, the bee bodies out. If you look at the edge of a hive, you'll often find you know, a number of, of dead bees that have been dropped out of the hive. And then after that point, they become scavenger, or uh, well, scavenger. They're, they become uh, the workers that go out and find the nectar and bring it and bring it back. And that's when they, they literally work themselves. They can fly as far as two miles um, to find the nectar, and then two miles back to bring it back. So eventually, they wear out, and that's usually when the bees, the worker bees, die during the the, the spring and summer. Hmm. And then, you know, that's why the queen is laying so many eggs because they go, you know, a lot of the bees simply die. Um, Does the queen bee just stay put? Stay, stays in the that never leaves the hive except um, if, if, the, if a queen is, is weakening, what's going to happen is the, the worker bees notice that and they build what's called a queen cell. And don't ask me why and how all this happens, because I don't know. I just know it happens. And they build a queen cell. And so the queen will lay an egg in there. The worker bees then pack that queen cell that's called royal jelly, because that egg's no different than any other egg in the hive. Mm -hmm. But they pack it with royal jelly, and don't ask me what that is either. But that genetically changes that, that egg from a worker bee into a queen bee. Queen bees are significantly larger than, than the, the, uh, the worker bees. And so when the bee comes out, it's a queen bee. You, no hive can have two queen bees. So they kill the old queen. Oh, my gosh. So now you've got a new queen, but she's not fertilized. So she, she leaves the hive. This is the one time she leaves the hive. She leaves the hive, and she goes on with you know, uh, her maiden flight. And then what happens is the... The drones are out there waiting to find the queen, and they mate with the queen. And, and multiple drones will mate with the queen, and that'll get uh, enough of sperm to the queen that she can lay eggs the rest of her life. And so uh, she returns to the hive. The drones die. They've done their job, so they die. 
and then uh, the queen stays in until she's worn out, and then they replace her again. Hmm. You know, so, so a beehive's like it's a collection of individual organisms, the bees, but it, it collectively is sort of a, 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 a societal organism too. Because if the, everybody's not doing what they're supposed to be, do, the hive, the colony will die. Yeah. So. It's pretty amazing. I mean, what you're describing, I'm just sitting here thinking of the, the line, truth, I guess, or science is stranger than fiction, because you really can't make no. this stuff up. It's Very like good. just unbelievable. And so that, you know, that's why I say I'm, I'm not, I, I've been doing this for 15 years. I don't try to understand some of the things, and shame on me for not doing that. But I, you know, it's, well, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it takes, it's, year, it takes yeah. years to figure out what's actually happening. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure even experts in biology and bees are marveling at this because it's, it's, a, ma- it's a mystery. You know, yeah. it's magical. It is magical. It is magical. Um, what is, so... What is actually leading to the decline in the bee population? Is that is that mysterious as well, or is there a known cause for that? Well, there there are probably more than one or two, one reason. I mean, to say neonicotinoids or, or pesticides and so forth are are the cause of it, um, yes, probably. You know, they they certainly play into it. Um, any chemicals that you in, introduce into the environment that's going to adversely affect an insect, whether it's a bee or whatever, is going to have an impact on 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 the bees. So that that's part of it. Um, there are parasites that have sort of evolved. That the uh, varroa mites are one. Um, uh, English fowl brood is another. There there are various parasites that can get into the hives and kill them. Um, there is, believe it or not, uh, where there are hives where there is simply one type of crop. That is, if, if you left a beehive in the almond orchards of California all year long, that hive would likely die because all it's getting is, you know, one type of food source. And that's not healthy. It'd be like eating McDonald's every day, you know. What is it called? Supersize. You know, so that's not good for bees. Um, Climate change is actually having a, you know, an effect because the, 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 the length of growing seasons, here in Baltimore, we only have a good nectar season in the late spring and early summer. After that, if you look around, most of the flowering plants aren't going to be producing nectar, you know, because when it gets dry and, 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 and you just don't have the nectar flow that you, you need. <coughs> um, the... Um, uh, and and then there there are other components, but those I think you know, in our hives we've lost hives because of um, what are known as hive beetles. Hive beetles are not anything other than if a hive gets weakened by one of those other things, the hive beetles sort of take over and they slime the, uh, the, the and they eat the the the, the larva and, and they they'll kill it. But in a in a healthy hive, the bees can control that themselves. I mean that they've always been there. But if a hive get weak, gets weak, that is for because of one of those other causes, then you've got a problem. Are those the main, I guess, competitors for bees? The yeah, hive beetles. Hive beetles, varroa mites, yeah, things of that sort. Yeah, hmm. yeah, interesting. 
Um, yeah, it's interesting as you're describing this that I'm just thinking about your trip to Kilimanjaro too, and like how every person in your unit has a role, oh. and every every single type of bee in the hive has a role, and you know when they're done their job, they're just they're done. That's what they needed to do. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because we ran into on on the first day at the gate of the national park around Kilimanjaro. We went in. We ran into a couple beekeepers, and, and, and Mary and I had a long chat with them while we were waiting to go. And then one of the the guides on our trip keeps bees too, so we were comparing notes. And, oh, there uh, you go. It was it was it was interesting. That makes for good conversation yeah, it make over it, the. It, it's, it's a common topic, yeah, yeah, common interest. I'd love to get to maybe the next topic is the book recommendation that you brought in and a uh, little George Washington I have here. I'm reading to the lower school kids today, and I've always been into the presidents and presidential trivia, and this book I've had for a while. It's this 10-year-old kid, and I think I was probably a little bit like him, maybe not to his extent, but like I had the presidents memorized when I was in like pre-K just because I was so fascinated by them. Um and I know, like, you know, I know some random trivia about each president, but this guy, he's got a whole book of, like, random facts. And I like it, too, because it got kind of cool cartoons. cartoons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to bring this to the little little guys today. But um, you, have a, you have a biography of well, George it, Washington? It, 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 it's – well, let me – should I hold this up here? This is um, – um, a book that explains uh, Washington's ascension to the presidency. Um, and uh, I've, as I mentioned earlier to you, I used it in the American government course because it, it, it explains sort of how the office of the presidency, the executive branch of the United States got created. Uh, I mean, what we think of Washington as the you know father of our country and all sorts of other things, but when he was elected president and he walked into that office after taking the inaugural address, there was no job description. There was no precedent that had ever been set. There was nothing there other than he's now the president of the United States, but what does that mean? And so um, uh, Harlow Unger, who, who is the author, does, I think, a really um, a really good job of explaining that 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 unfolding process. Um, I, I like Washington as a historical figure because, you know, he's he's credited with so much um, and, you know, he's credited with being the, the winning general of the Revolutionary War when, in fact, Washington wasn't a very good general. He was an incredibly um, talented and gifted leader, but he his military savvy, even dating back to his... his, his participation in the French and Indian War, you know, he didn't win as many battles as he lost, but he won wars. And, and that, I think, is a testament to the way in which he could hold people together. And, and, and the, the book um, really goes through the, 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 the powers that became important to the president and the executive office of the United States and how Washington was was instrumental in establishing those, and so I I, I liked it. I'm I'm sorry to say that you know it isn't in print anymore, and that makes it much more difficult to use. Um, but uh, uh, it, I I still would recommend it to someone who who wants to 
get perspective on um, the office of the presidency and, and some perspective on Washington himself. But it's more about the office, and, and I think that's what's really kind of cool about it. But he was instrumental, you know, as an individual. Had somebody else, you know, great historical questions, I think, can be um, posed by saying, well, what if? You know, what Washington should have been killed a couple of times in the French and Indian War. And what if he had? What what would that have meant to our country? Um, uh, there was another um, destiny. Uh, it's about James Garfield. Gosh, I'm forgetting the name of it. Yep, yeah, yeah. Destiny of the Republic. Republic. Yeah. I mean, you know, what if he had lived? You know, because he would have. I, I mean, from what I know about his first couple of months right. in office, he would have been a great president. He seemed like a man of character and a good leader. He he, he was, and I think you know the, the, those types of questions can be posed, um, you know, uh, 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 in lots of situations. Um, so it's interesting, also thinking about you know leadership in terms of well, what if. You know, what if Calvin Coolidge, for instance, wasn't a president during the most prosperous time in American history? Like, would he have been a effective leader during the 30s when Roosevelt was in office? Who knows? So the, the, the twists of, of history, I think, are it, it's fun to have those discussions, but, you know, knowing that there's really no answer. So I also think. Uh, Going back to Washington and thinking about his leadership qualities, when we think of him, we see the paintings where he's, you know, front and center, and he's six three, and he's, you know, he's got the powerful presence. Um, he's the first president of the United States. He's known as one of the greatest leaders of all time. But, you know, he made the decision not to be the emperor, or the king of the. United States and I think he said you know I'd rather be a farmer than the emperor of the world or something like he he was the type of leader that almost led from the back in some ways yeah, well when he resigned his commission you know at the end of the revolution which is you know he did it in Annapolis which you know sometimes people lose sight of Annapolis for a brief period of time was the nation's capital so yeah he uh he, he, I, I, I appreciate his qualities, you know, uh, and, and, you know, he certainly was a slave owner, and there's no escaping that, and, 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 you know, for that, I guess, historically, we can look back and be critical of him, but I do have to say that he did, upon his death, free his slaves. He wasn't able to free those slaves that belonged to his wife. So he had, I think, a moral compass but he's also, I think, somewhat pragmatic, you know, during his own lifetime that he realized, um, you know, uh, the value that, that, that the, the coerced labor had to him uh, during his life. So I think that's I think that's true. That's interesting to think about. And um, I taught a little bit of Phyllis Wheatley in my American literature class this year, and we read some of Phyllis Wheatley. So she's a enslaved woman who came over to Boston, outside of Boston, on a ship called Phyllis, and that was her name. And uh, she was taken in by the Wheatley family, and she was educated. She was taught the Bible. She was taught Latin and Greek, and she started writing her own poems. And she wrote her first poem, I think, at 14 years old. And we read some of her poetry and also some of her, the letters she wrote. And she wrote a poem in 1776 for Washington. It was like, you know, George Washington, His Excellency, or something titled. Right. That's... And he wrote a letter back to her after reading this. 
you know, this poem by an enslaved woman and he writes back to her and it's one of the most, I, I guess, cordial and like uh, sincere letters that, I mean, I, you, you would assume so that he's, you know, a, a leader like that, but he's writing to an enslaved woman and he signs the letter, um, your most humble and obedient servant. And I always thought that that was fascinating because here you are having a, the leader of, uh, of the army in 1776 writing to a slave and signing it your servant. Um, yeah. Just, I guess, speaks to his, I guess, leadership style and abilities. Yeah, he, um, he, the, you used the, your excellency. That was something that was uh, there. Uh, Ellis wrote a book about Washington and his George Washington. Um, and uh, it, it, dealt with his assumption of that title and then ultimately when he became president they they didn't want to call him that because it was too royal and um, and so there was a debate in the first congress as to what the president should be called and it was eventually decided that he would be addressed as Mr. President which is still the way in which if you you know you watch the 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 press conferences and so forth that the president is referred to as Mr. President that started, you know, here with George. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I'm going to share, I think I'm, I chose Washington as one of my presidents and I'm going to share to the lower school guys today. And uh, he, so some of these facts that are in here are awesome. Um, so he lost all of his teeth at age 57. He didn't have any teeth, um, partly because he ate because he ate, what, walnuts or walnuts? Yeah, walnuts he was, he was and, a big nut, nut yeah. And uh, he wouldn't shake hands with people because he preferred bowing. He would bow to everyone. And um, he didn't take baths because he believed they were unhealthy for him. But all of these facts about the presidents are so interesting. Yeah. Um, who would be among your, like, your personal Mount Rushmore of United States presidents, do you think? Well, I'd certainly include Washington. Um, well, that question, I'm, I can't I have to say I hadn't thought about it. I'd be answering here right now. Um, I suppose FDR would rank in there. Um, Lincoln would have to be in there. I'm not a big fan of Thomas Jefferson's. You You're know. not? No, I'm not. How come? Um, I think Jefferson was probably, as an intellect, one of the brightest presidents. But he, he I don't know that he had common sense, for lack of a better way of putting it. I mean, he he squandered the, the wealth and the fortune that he had, you know, he died penniless, and as a result, his 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 slaves had to be auctioned off in order to, to pay off his debts. Um, I, I I appreciate him as an intellect. I don't think I appreciate him as much as a leader. You know, so I I, I can't put him amongst my favorite presidents because of that. You know, I think mm-hmm. he he would have been a better diplomat, better senator, or something like that. I think the the office of the president and, and being an administrator, you know, he was not a good administrator of his own 
uh, of his own property, and I don't know that he was necessarily a great administrator uh, of the nation. I give, but I have to give him credit for for finalizing the deal on the Louisiana Purchase. If you know, of all the things that he did as president, I would that, that would rank high mm-hmm. uh, in, in in my view. Um, uh, of the more recent presidents. Hmm. Would you put Johnson in there? Johnson was a great politician. Yes, I, I would. I mean, I, I think I would. He he was on domestic affairs. I think he was absolutely brilliant, and and he was able to, having been in Congress for so long, he was able to to work with Congress and get legislation done. Being a Southern Democrat, he was able to rally that portion of the Democratic Party, um, you know, around the civil rights issues. Um, his foreign affairs, he was not quite as strong. You know, he, he I don't think he handled Vietnam very well. Um, um, and whether that was entirely his fault, I don't know. Uh, that, that uh, but I, his administration certainly didn't, didn't, didn't um, deal with that issue quite as well. But domestically, I think he would rank as, as one of the, the best presidents, yeah. Hmm. Um. You know, conversely, I would say Nixon was very good in terms of foreign affairs and foreign awareness, but domestically he was a f- total failure. Right. I mean, he, he, he was, you know, and, and he had his own character flaws that he had, that, that he, so uh, yeah. he certainly wouldn't be anywhere near it in, in my top five. Yeah, it's very hard to, I guess, rank the presidents because, first of all, you have to calculate the, you know, into the time period and when this person was in office, and then person like Garfield as president, like what could have been. You know, um, it was four months in, and he was shot, and then he was. There's, you know, the interesting. Have you read the book? I have. <laughs> It, it's an interesting book because it brings history and science, you know, and, and all of those different forces together. And it talks about uh, uh, Alexander Graham Bell and the, the precursors of the of the X-ray machines and all into that. So it was, and it's somewhat condemning of the uh, medicine at that point in time too. So and you know, people didn't believe in germs. I mean, think thinking back, and that's why I think you know teaching. A history course or a democracy course like you do is so interesting is that you look back at these times with almost like wow how did they not know how did they not realize yeah um so i think it is easy to look back on the past and judge the times and judge you know the situation in washington and jefferson and and garfield but um people like that but that's just the the era they were living in and you know it's very hard to look back on that from a modern perspective um but yeah it's it's a great book and i think i think it's candace millard maybe wrote that book candace and she millard, also yep. wrote one uh, about uh, uh roosevelt teddy roosevelt and he, read that and, and it's about his expeditions in africa which i think you might like yeah. um well another author that sort of does something similar to millard is is um Larson, Eric Larson, and does you know takes a historic event or so, and then weaves into it another you know historical uh, mystery or whatever you know and uh, 
read a few of his books. I haven't read all of them yet, but uh, I, I enjoy him as an author. So. There's one about the World Fair in Chicago. That's a Devil in the White City, yeah. That's a pretty good one, That's right? a really good one. That's about the serial killer in, in Chicago during the time of the Columbian uh, Exhibition of 1893, yeah. Yeah, he's interesting because he writes about things that people, I mean, maybe don't look into enough or haven't really thought much about. Like, I hadn't studied much or knew much about the World Fair before. Well, the the, uh, Olmstead, who did Central Park, his company was the one who laid out the uh, World's Fair. They were hired to be the, the landscape engineers of the of the world's fair in, in, in chicago he also wrote one called um, thunderstruck about marconi and the evolution of the wireless telegraph the you know the radio and he weaves it in with a uh, 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 a murder mystery in, in great britain and it, it that that one was fun and then he wrote one about the sinking of the um lusitania the Dead wake, I think. You know, so he, you know, he where he picks up this stuff, you know, you really kind of wonder. But then he takes two things that actually occurred and then weaves them together, and it's really fascinating, I think. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, Mr. Gamper, thank you very much for uh, for spending some time today. It's been very interesting learning about your time in Africa and beekeeping, and a little bit about the president. So, appreciate you coming in. It was my pleasure. 